0: Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? In our last episode, I chat with Sam Jennings, former midwife with Doctors Without Borders. In this episode, we pick up where we left off as I look deeper into what she learned in Uganda. I guess my first question, like from just hearing that is, um, what did you learn from the Ugandan midwives? And then how do you do an emergency C-section with so few resources? Like, how does that work? Um, so
1: what did I learn about from the Ugandan midwives? So, uh, I guess supporting women with HIV and TB and chronic anaemia and malaria—that these are things that you just—I'd never come across. You know, theoretically you read about it in your studies, and i have done a lot of reading and re- uh, reading before I, I went. Um, and so you provided with support and, and some training from uh, Doctors Without Borders to do this, and you are supported by other colleagues. I mean, in the project I had, you know. A nurse and a doctor and other people who are very used to supporting these chronic conditions but actually seeing pregnant women who with HIV was not something that I'd really come across ever before so so I had to learn a lot about a lot about that. Um, It was you know it was kind of harsh sometimes for me to see the realities of how the Ugandan midwives often cared for the women you know I'd come from being a midwife who would massage women's backs and give them sips of water and you know cold heads you know really be that emotional support with women one-on-one like giving them like everything and that wasn't how they practiced you know often they're very stretched they're in low resource settings so they've got a lot of women and uh, but it was often just I I struggle with their lack of compassion sometimes you know, um, and how they communicated, and that they were sometimes very harsh and sometimes physical with the women, and I'm so the opposite to that 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 was a challenge for me to kind of work with and overcome. Um, uh, but yeah, and also just I've been in settings, obviously it was different, mildly in the Aboriginal context, but you know, after midwives, there's an emergency happening, and either if you're in the home setting, you call nine one one. Or you're in the hospital and you pull the emergency butter and people come running in all directions to come and help you, you know. But when you're in these settings, emergencies happen and you just have to rely on your core abilities and your skills to to do what you can do. And there's often limited things that you can do. You know, obviously across my three different projects, you may or may not have access to blood transfusions for women who have have lost a lot of blood. You may or may not be able to get a woman in emergency cesarean within the 10 minutes that you would normally want to within a Western context because of the risks for mum and baby. Um there's often things uh that you, you just cannot do. So you do your best, you use your skills, you use your abilities, you use your equipment and your team around you, but you can't always save everybody, you know, and that's quite a hard, a hard thing for a midwife to realise that most midwives luckily will not come across a maternal death. Um in their practice hopefully and even in the Congo alone I had nine maternal deaths within a year and you know we saved hundreds of thousands of women but that was nine women that I was with um, until they until they died and then being with their families and sort of telling their families that that had happened so yeah it was um, you had just lots to learn about life and humanity you know
0: like, what was the context in in when where one of the maternal deaths happened in the Congo?
1: Yeah, so so in the Congo, there was many challenges against the women from getting the medical care that they needed. Obviously, the geography of where we were, we were in sort of the rainforesty sort of jungle, very north, so they had to transfer huge distances to get to us. But, also, the insecurity of the conflict. it was and still is an ongoing uh, war zone, basically. so they encompasses many dangers along the way and a prolific area of sexual violence. So there's a great fear in a lot of the women of of making that journey to us through with like sort of the hospital within hours' worth of, of reach, you know, and so, do they embark on this quite perilous journey to get to us or do they take their chances and deliver at home, you know, and stay more secure and keep their family and their children safe? But if they come across a problem in labour, then they're in trouble, you know? So we did our best to identify cases so uh, of high, high-risk women, so women who've had many, many babies, women with previous cesareans, women with breech babies, uh, twins, triplets, multiples, um, HIV so any woman we were anticipating the problem with we would actually recuperate those women and we set up a little hostel um kind of on our hospital grounds so up to 40 high-risk women were always there at any one time just waiting to go into into labor you know but obviously to be there they will have to leave their children so we couldn't always encourage every woman to come and be there you know because they would risk um, not being around often. A lot of the men of the households were either fighting in the conflict, unfortunately had been, had been killed or had been displaced or whatever. So women were really the heads of the household. So leaving children was a big situation. And, uh, and I think, yeah, one of, uh, I mean, most of the cases related to that. So they would either deliver at home and were bleeding very heavily uh, and would have lost so much blood by the time they got to us that they were critically already in shock, really, from the symptoms of hemorrhage. Um, but also another big problem and complication was um, obstructive childbirth. So the women would be in labour for long, long, long periods. Um, and because of different malpresentations or of the physiology and the anatomy of, of the woman and the birth, so the women were not progressing. So they would be stuck, basically, at a certain dilatation. And, you know, in Western hospitals, uh, Ultimately, these women would have caesarean to deliver these babies, but these women would be out in their villages for two, three days. Um, the uteruses would become so exhausted and tired because of the ongoing contractions that uteruses would actually rupture. So most midwives would never see this in this context, an actual uterus rupturing. Um, so that's you know, it's critical for these women because it's a major organ, the amount of blood flow that's coming every minute to the uterus. So these women, um, you know, the blood loss, the shock, uh, the babies are then, uh, then actually come through into sort of the layer above that. So when they arrive to you, the babies are just sort of below the skin level, you know? So most of the cases that we saw, of the maternal deaths, this has been basically what had happened that the, ba- the woman in uterus had ruptured. She came to us, her hemoglobin levels were very, very low already, generally in almost 100% of the cases, the babies had died um, already because of asphyxia. Um, so we then had to basically work then to save the mother's life, which was uh, normally doing a full hysterectomy because the uteruses were just not salvageable, um, you know, giving blood transfusions, supporting her. But because these women have been in labor so long and the babies have been in the vagina for so long, the heads of the babies have been putting pressure on all of the anatomy, um, of all the anatomy down in the vagina and the rectum, so these women had obstetric fistulas. Um, so even if she recovered from all of that, of the you know the ruptured uterus and the hysterectomy, then they often had these obstetric fistulas, very large fistulas, which you know then made them incontinent and prone to infection. So just like these, we saw these cases every day and every week, and it's just you, you know heartbreaking totally heartbreaking that these women are forced to make incredibly difficult decisions about where they birth their babies and then they're cut off because of geography um, or conflict or other situations that prevent them getting care and then their babies die and then they have to fight for life and then suffer kind of the consequences of a fistula for the rest of their lives and and totally heartbreaking
0: Mm. Um, are you and and are you working with other midwives, or are there are there, are there also doctors part of the birth team? I'm just I'm curious because you know in, midwives in Canada are so limited. I mean, we uh, wouldn't be working with in high risk births or anything like that. So what's it like yeah. in the yeah. MSF context?
1: Yeah. So in each MSF project, there was generally a nurse or two, depending on the size, a doctor uh, or or two, uh, and a midwife. And they're really trying to prioritize now to so the a midwife in every program. So they've found it a bit of a challenge. I think naturally across, across definitely across the UK, um, there's a big shortage of midwives. Actually finding enough experienced midwives to put into every single program for Doctors Without Borders has been a challenge, but it's getting much better now. So you've got not only your Doctors Without Borders team, but you have got obviously the local Congolese medical staff too. So you're not working alone in isolation. You're working in a really good team. Um, where, you know, you're working alongside each other. In the Congo, there was um, a doctor to that board of surgeon and a doctor to that board of an anaesthetists as well because we were doing so much surgery because of conflict, because of um, conflict-related problems as well as, as birth. So I knew that once we could get them to the hospital, I had a surgeon who together we could perform a cesarean and a hysterectomy, an anaesthetist who could support them as much as they could. Um, and also the Congolese staff, you know, you'd work tirelessly. As, as a team to provide as much care and support to these women as you could. Um, but often they would come to you too late, yeah? So no matter what you could do, you you just couldn't... They were already in critical shock by the time they arrived in the hospital. But you are, you know, you are as a midwife well well supported, depending on which projects you go, depending on how much experience the other doctor or that border's doctor has had. Often they're just general doctors, so they maybe have not had as much obstetrics. So as a midwife, you're obviously... More qualified in normal and actually abnormal birth than the the doctors are um but you're never alone you know you're always shoulder to shoulder making decisions uh, managing situations alongside a good team of either doctors that border staff or like local local uh, staff to your project to your country
0: so and then kind of coming back to you now having four kids of your own under four under six right yeah. <laughs> um yeah. How did being a midwife and all your experiences? um, What was that like when you were first pregnant? When you got pregnant with your first uh, baby?
1: So I was pregnant in the Congo in this war zone when I first got pregnant, and uh, and it was a really difficult decision for me to make because I was immersed in this project, as you can imagine, like life and death every second, making a huge impact. Loved it. But we'd done done close to a year then anyway. So we were very close to the end of our mission. You know, physically, you can't maintain those levels for any longer than that. Physically and emotionally, you need to be stepping out of that situation, usually at 6 to 9 to 12 months. So I think I was 12 weeks pregnant when I got back to the UK from from that. Um, And we actually had a little... uh, a little ultrasound machine in the Congo so you know one of my midwives and me would do a little ultrasound every uh every little week just to make sure everything was good and, and I and I felt great you know um yeah so uh I you know I just as a midwife I knew how I wanted my pregnancy to be I'd got dreams of how my birth would be and uh and we went back to the UK and we delivered our first baby in the UK so
0: yeah yeah uh, and uh like how did your How did your first uh, birth go? Were you Was it what you wanted or what you expected?
1: not what I wanted at all. Actually, no. Um, I had got my heart set on a home water birth and uh, had the birthing pool at home, and that was how it was going to be. But then, on I think a thirty-eight week ultrasound. They identified I had very low levels of amniotic fluid around the baby. So they wanted to induce me at 38 weeks. So the day they did that scan, they wanted they basically admitted me to be induced. So from wanting this very natural, natural process, I started my journey into labor being augmented, basically, with the, the prostaglandin. Um, fortunately that was all I needed my body um, my body absorbed it and progressed very easily and very quickly so I didn't need any extra pain relief and I did labor and birth very quickly within just a few hours but I was devastated about not living not delivering at home because that had been my dream and uh, but at the end of the day I just wanted a healthy baby and I wanted it all to be okay and and it definitely was we received great care and it was still the lovely soft music husband mum um natural birth that
0: it that it wanted to be just a different location Right, sounds like it sounds like um i mean it's amazing because you've seen a thousand births but even going through your first pregnancy it sounds like it it's um it's almost kind of like a lot of women have those expectations and you almost had to go through that same process of of learning about what birth really was like
1: yeah. I mean, you never know. You, you've been with so many women supporting them through contractions, but until you have your first contraction, you really don't know how that's going to feel. You know, you've coached a thousand women through different breathing techniques, but until you have your first pain, you don't know how you're actually going to cope with the breathing, you know. And describing that pushing, the pushing feelings to women, you know, about oh, it's burning, yeah. it's stretching, it's fire, it's, it's whatever, until you're actually at the crowning point of delivering your first baby, you have no idea what. Yeah, about, yeah, don't worry. Totally. You know? And it's excruciating, agonizing, but you're so close, you know, you're so close to meeting your baby. But yeah, I mean, obviously I've birthed four times now. I'm very lucky that eventually, third time, I did get my beautiful home water birth and it's, you know all my births have been very beautiful, but that was it all came together finally in the third birth but um yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah, definitely I've learned a lot. I haven't practiced as a midwife since my first son was born, so that's six years ago now, you know, we've had four babies in that time, and I've been a stay at home mummy and I'm exclusively breastfeeding, and we've traveled and and lived in three different four different countries and continents, so I've just been very absorbed and consumed and I'm happy It's with a lot of work. right now, yeah yeah <laughs> so, um, yeah, I feel like I did ten amazing years sort of internationally as a midwife, and now this is where I need to be with my little people and um you know my midwife day is definitely not over, but right now this is where i I need to be in the world where I am.
0: well it's it's an amazing place because you've you've put in ten years and now you can be really fully present with your with your children yeah. and it's so what a nice feeling
1: yeah. Yeah absolutely you make choice you know we've made choices um, and I've enjoyed I've enjoyed my midwifing days immensely but yeah this is really I've made a lot of I guess there's been times where I've deliberated should I be going back and I've missed it because I've loved it so much and I feel a little lost that I'm not practicing now but I don't think I'm ever going to regret these years when I was 100% just mothering you know I don't think I'll ever look back and think oh, I should have I should have done the midwife in those days you know I've been fully present for six years and in it and breastfed and co-slept and done all of that stuff so I think these are all great skills that are only going to help me to be a stronger better midwife when I eventually do go back but yeah they're only so young for so little time you know that I don't think I'll ever get these days.
0: Yeah and it well I mean for them to grow up having a mum um with that kind of background and but also being present I mean there's so much there's so much richness for them too.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited, you know, we talk about um we talk about where I've been and traveled and birth a lot. Um obviously my daughter was born 5 months ago and my three children were all there at the birth and uh and they loved it. My daughter had basically her hands on baby Ren's head as she was born. And they were all just, you know, um, my birthing photos, I can happily share you some, but these three little heads who were just watching this process. And Isla and was coaching me through it, my daughter, who's four. She was just one more push mummy. I can see the hair mummy. Like she was my little doula and midwife and, uh, and amazing. And we didn't know that we were having a girl. So We've got two boys and two girls now. And Isla's face, when um, she looked down and she was like, it's a girl, mommy, you know, it's a girl. And she was desperate for a baby sister. And uh, and it was just the most incredible moment when she announced to the world in the room that we've got a baby girl. So,
0: that's, so, that's so special. Maybe one day you and her will be midwives together and who knows.
1: Yeah, she is so into birth. You know, she really was the whole entire pregnancy. She came to my appointment. We talk about it. I've got dolls that have got placentas attached and we've got so many books around it and she's, you know, she's been present at actually my son's birth and Wren's birth. So, yeah, uh, I've got this dream that maybe me and her will uh, will go back and I'll go back to Doctors Without Borders and we'll do some work and stuff together in the future.
0: Yeah. What was yeah. the transition like going from uh, midwife to deciding to becoming a mother of, you know, and being at home with, with your four beautiful kids?
1: Yeah so so I guess it kind of happened almost really by accident so when my son was four months old my husband who was still with Doctors Without Borders got placed in Delhi um, so uh, there was no midwives in Delhi so there was no mechanism for me to work with Doctors Without Borders as a midwife so being there for two years with him as his wife um, there was no mechanism for me to do that so I, I was kind of That was it. I was going to be a stay-at-home mummy in, in, in India for a couple of years. So I guess if I'd been in the UK where I could have practiced, maybe within a year I'd have probably gone back to it in some capacity. But because there wasn't that opportunity, I just embraced it. And actually we had our first two children within 14 months. So very quickly, I was the mother of two, actually. And I just really immersed myself in daily life. It was a very spiritual place. It was very cultural. It was amazing to have your two babies with you and going to temples and markets and all of that. So, um, and then that's it. Then we moved to Canada, where there was the possibilities of me um, becoming a midwife there. But actually, the, the, the practicalities of being a midwife, being called cool 24-7 um, with young children just seemed like a too big a challenge for us as a family at the time you know I just didn't want to be paying other people to look after my young children and to be suffering from that guilt of always feeling like I was probably not doing either of those tasks fully and by best abilities um so yeah I just, just made the made the decision that that was going to be that and and just enjoyed it you know just breastfed and co-slept and 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 we just enjoyed every aspect of mothering and and now I'm a mother of four that I can't imagine how other parents actually find time to work because life daily life is so incredibly busy you know I don't know how people get in eight hours of work or, or a day on top of being mothers and families and homemakers because I'm just totally stretched already you know but um it's not for everybody. Being a stay-at-home mummy isn't what every mother wants, what every woman wants and needs. But for me, I found, uh, I've, we've, I found, yeah, my calling. I, I always dreamed of having four babies. It was not my husband's dream, but we are here and we have evolved to this point. Um, so yeah, it's being a mother to four young children is is a real blessing and a joy. And I'm just very lucky that we financially are okay. We've chosen a humble existence, so I could be a stay-at-home mummy. And uh, and that's a choice that we've made, that we can go without things so I can be at home with them. And again, that's not a choice anybody, everybody would make, but that's that's
0: what, what we've come to I, I like that, you, you know, you showed him some wise woman ways in Uganda and you showed him the wise woman ways as a parent, <laughs> that having four is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Um, I really, I really enjoyed our conversation and like i i know uh i'm i, I kind of shared with you that i'm studying to become a midwife and um okay. but uh i'm actually 35 so i'm i'm kind of on the opposite where i'm starting a little later than you but it's so inspiring to talk with you yeah. and kind of hear about your journey and and I'm, ha- I'm expecting my third child in in may so i feel like yeah, okay. there's a there's a lot to to kind of share and i love i love hearing the stories that you're that you've gone yeah. through
1: yeah, well, it's such a, it's such an amazing job. You know, um, it's not always easy, but it's definitely amazing. And, and internationally as well, if you have opportunities ever arise, you know, maybe not now or in 10 years or 20 years. But yeah, just growing as a person, as a midwife, I can, can't recommend it enough to everybody who can to go overseas and practice in some different cultures and different contexts because, uh, I don't know, it just brings a whole new set of knowledge and experience and skills and perspective on things, you know.
0: Yeah, if you had any advice yeah, to give yeah. to a, a, a midwife starting out, what would it be?
1: Uh, you know, I think doctors at is they still have this requirement of a few years of experience. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, so just to, um, you know, I think in the UK you really do need to prepare yourself and do lots of voluntary work to get a spot on a midwifery program. And that it, that it isn't easy. The training is very intensive, actually. I think no matter where you do it, it's a, it's, it's not easy when you're trying to do the practical sides and then the academic sides and uh, and fit it all in. But it's, so, it's such an amazing thing once you get there. And then, um, and yeah, then strive to, to do what you need to do to have some international experience. And Doctors Without Borders is such an amazing organization that, you know, every dingle day that I worked for them I'd be proud to put my t-shirt on because I knew they did an incredible job I knew they they used the resources in the best way that they supported their staff that they they were just so well respected in the communities that we worked in and that wasn't always the case we had a lot of first-hand experience for other organizations that didn't necessarily practice and do things as I was wanting to do them but doctors at Borders, I just feel a real strong passion for and I'm a real advocate for because they really do say and do what they say they do
0: join us for the next episode self-care for parents and birth workers with instagrammer yoga teacher parent extraordinaire and student midwife trish frempong and remember if you like this episode subscribe and leave a review on itunes